For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics. Along with civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel and sitting in for Neva Hill is former House Speaker Chris Steele, joining me over Zoom video conference. Public meetings are resuming in person starting next week, despite the recent surge in COVID-19 in the state. Back in the spring, lawmakers passed a law allowing the gatherings to take place virtually, but that expires on Sunday. House Democrats are calling for a special session to renew the law. Ryan, how concerned should people be about this? Well, I think that you have to look at, you know, this was something that the legislature looked at back in the spring. There was a flurry of bills trying to address this situation so that public bodies could be able to still continue to meet during that spring surge, which now uh, looks you know, pale in comparison to what we're experiencing in the state and what many, including President-elect Biden, call a possible dark winter ahead of us uh, with, with, COVID, uh, with COVID surges in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, you know, that said, the reason that it was it was initially uh, going to be a year-long period where this was going to be in effect, and there were some concerns. Uh, members of you know, public advocacy groups, the media, and the press were concerned about a 12-month period of, of allowing Open Meetings Act to be uh, complied with through teleconferencing. Um, so they shortened it down, and now we have this, this, uh, this situation where now we're going to have in-person meetings. I think that it's something that, um, you know, the there's a real loss of advocacy whenever you have teleconferencing. Uh, you know, I talked to Trace Savage, uh, who's the editor-in-chief over at Non-Doc, and Trace has been out at the Capitol testifying to lawmakers both during their con- original consideration and now whenever in an interim study. And he said, you know, there's, there's two things that you need to look at. There's a difference between access and interaction. He said streaming should be something that we do anyways, whether there's COVID or not. I mean, all public meetings should be streamed so that everybody has access. But he says interaction is different. Um, and the ability to interact face-to-face with your elected officials or people representing the government, he said that's lost in teleconferencing. So I doubt that there's going to be any real change uh, between now and, and the session that starts. Uh, there'll probably be some consideration this upcoming session about making this permanent. I, I, suspect, I suspect there'll be pretty uh, significant pushback to that idea, though. Chris. Sure. So I, I think I agree for the most part with, with Ryan's assessment, also with uh, uh, Mr. Savage's assessment that, mm-hmm. you know, there is a, an element that's lost when you have to conduct meetings virtually. Um, but I think making sure that uh, individuals who aren't able to physically be present have some uh uh, conduit to to be able to participate and see and hear what's going on is very very important. Um, I, I would say this. I think the the biggest opportunity uh, in in not renewing the um, the amendment to the Open Meetings Act to allow these meetings to to take place virtually is the message that that COVID may not be as serious as it actually is. Um, so the reality is all along through all the interim. Uh, studies, people could still meet in person, those who felt comfortable, those who were able to do that safely. um, There was still the opportunity to do that, but it was also an understanding that if you didn't feel safe or if you felt like you needed to take additional precautions that you could participate virtually. And I I fear that we may be sending the wrong message by not renewing this, that, that we're not taking the pandemic as seriously as we should, especially from our elected leaders' uh, point of view. Yeah, Speaker, I think that that's that's right. And the uh, these public bodies that are that are going to be going back in person, uh, I think that it's it's paramount on them that people that are going to be participating in person don't have to choose between their health 
and participating in their in their in the democratic process. So um, they they should still have some options for people to participate remotely, even if they're going to be having this these in person meetings now to comply with the. Open Meetings Act. And I guess also making sure that the people who are watching are able to watch it at any time without having to personally come into the room, which some of these are very small rooms. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, as Trace said, they should be doing that anyways. He said he said it shouldn't take a pandemic uh, for the for like the, the state uh, Department of Higher Regions to to say we're going to you know have you know, streaming access so that people can make these so people can at least watch uh, these public um, uh, uh, public policies being debated by their officials elected or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I would say, just, just to uh, uh, put a fine point on this, anything and everything that we could do to increase access and participation, transparency and accountability um, is a really good move. And so to, to make sure that we consider and continue to consider uh, how we can open up the legislative process um, I think is is extremely important. I, I think it produces better results and 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 a more informed citizenry and and all ultimately leads to the best possible outcomes. The Oklahoma County Budget Board voted seven to one to take fifteen million dollars of the money returned by the jail trust for small businesses, nonprofits, and others impacted by the pandemic. The county commissioners still have to approve the transfer. Chris, do you think it will get through the final ratification in the Oklahoma County Commissioners? Well, I sure hope so. Uh, the 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 reality is, I I think the move was the right move by the the jail trust to send the money back to the community, to to, to small businesses, to entities that can really help uh, fellow Oklahomans who are are struggling to make it through this pandemic. Um, I, I also support, uh, just in full transparency, the opportunity to use a portion of those funds for the jail. I, I think that there are some real health concerns uh, and some issues that need to be addressed. And I, I kind of feel like at the end of the day, the jail trust found the, the proper balance. Uh, but I am very hopeful and supportive that the county commissioners uh, will ultimately see fit to send this money back straight away. I mean, the the we've got to get this money moving and back into our economy, as I understand it, before the end of the year. Um, and so we don't want to do anything that's not responsible, but time is of the essence. And, and this money is, is these resources are ultimately intended to help uh, sustain and uh, create stability for those who are directly impacted uh, by the, um, the economic loss or otherwise caused by the pandemic. And, and these dollars need to be moving within our community and within our county just as soon as possible. Right, right. And the jail trust did actually say they were keeping $22 million to deal with COVID-related issues at the county jail. Well, and, you know, the the drama of all of this, the soap opera that's been unplaying in county government and, you know, you know, kudos to folks like the Oklahoma City Free Press that have had just magnificent coverage uh, of the blow by blow at the uh, at the county level. I think that we're probably uh, at a at a high point, a high water mark for Oklahoma County residents uh, knowing things about the, the county budget board or this this newly formed jail trust. Uh, or meetings within the Oklahoma uh, corporate uh, uh, county commissioners. I mean, these things are uh, these are these are real world decisions that have an enormous impact on the quality of life of the people of Oklahoma County. And uh, I think for a long time, you know, people that look at the state legislature, uh, they look at Congress, they they may look at their city council. County government hasn't really been a focal point for a lot of people. And when you look at what's happening, uh, you know, everything from the the personality conflicts. 
uh, that, that happened between you know, folks like Commissioner Calvi, who has a seat on all three of those entities, uh, and Commissioner uh, Kerry Blumert, who's been a, a real champion here, um, and the procedural dynamics. I mean, yeah, this is this is kind of uh, this is like you know Aaron Sorkin type type stuff that's <laughs> happening at the at the county level here, and if you look, you know, uh, Commissioner Calvi was initially he wanted to put all 34 million of that CARES Act over the jail trust. It they allocated over there, and then the jail trust comes back, like you know, Speaker Steele said, and says, well, you know, thanks, but we don't need all of that, and then they try to send it back. Uh, and then Commissioner Calvi tries to even prevent a vote on whether or not the county can allocate this uh, through the CARES Act to small businesses and uh, that need this help. Because, and to be clear, what's happening here is this is uh, relief. This will be relief if, if it's approved by the county commission, which it looks like there's support for it. You know, I think that Commissioner Mon and Commissioner Bloomer, they teamed up on a procedural vote in the budget meeting uh, that indicates to me that there's two votes on the uh, Oklahoma County Commission to move forward with this CARES Act distribution. So if they do that, this will help folks outside of the Oklahoma City area that already have access to CARES Relief Act funds. You know, this is for folks that are in those unincorporated areas of the county. Big, big deal. It's totally not enough money, but it, it would be a huge deal for those businesses if that's able to happen. Well, and, and I, I would just say, because I, I try hard and I'm fascinated by the whole whole process to to understand all perspectives. And, and as I understand it, Commissioner Cal Calvi is under the impression that if the COVID dollars or the, the relief funds go to the, the county jail, that's something that, in his opinion, could be equitable and fair to everyone involved. And, and he has said repeatedly that he's concerned about, you know, potentially the haves and the have-nots as to who gets selected for these grants. Um, so on, on one point, I, I can appreciate that, but I also am very much under the impression that the criteria uh, can be established, fair criteria that would, would apply and be applicable to every entity that would qualify and need these resources. And there's no doubt in my mind that the, 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 the proper criteria could be uh, established in short order so that small businesses and, and, and individuals uh, and entities that that need this these these funds would have the opportunity to apply and receive them in a timely manner. A former Oklahoma Congressman Jim Bridenstine says he's stepping down as the head of NASA. Bridenstine was nominated by to the position by President Trump in 2018. He insists his decision is not partisan, but what's best for the agency and the mission. Ryan, what do you think of Bridenstine leaving leaving as NASA administrator? Well, you know, I'm going to eat some crow here. You know, I, whenever <laughs> whenever President Trump. Uh, first appointed uh, then Congressman Bridenstein to be the head of NASA. Uh, you know, he he at that point was going to be the first political figure, the first elected official to assume that role. You know, traditionally that's a role that's been held by career scientists uh, that have worked in NASA or in related fields. And NASA has, for uh, its entire tenure for the most part, escaped political uh, polarization and partisanship. And as somebody myself who follows space science uh, and has a, has a keen interest in that, I was really concerned about what that meant for the trajectory of NASA. Uh, and boy, was I wrong. Uh, you know, Congressman Bridenstine, Administrator Bridenstine has le is leaving NASA stronger than when he found it. Uh, and I think you know, some of that is demonstrated by the fact that he stood up in many instances to the Trump administration's effort to politicize things coming out of NASA and uh, the administrator you know, really said that this is a, a mission. Uh, it was mission focused. 
and he protected the scientific integrity of NASA. So congratulations to him on, on a remarkable tenure uh, and what a wonderful and exciting opportunity for him and for the state of Oklahoma. Chris. Yeah, I would I would echo those those comments. I, I do think that that Congressman Bridenstine in his in his um, remarks uh, regarding his transition really revealed some some important um, values uh, for him personally. And, and I think some attributes to his character, and that is he is interested in the well-being of, of NASA, of the organization. He wants to make sure that the organization is um, taken care of and the interest uh, and the mission of, of NASA is put uh, in the forefront. And, and I think he's making the right decision. I, I, I think that he has left the door open potentially for him to come back in some sort of advisory capacity or, or he, he may not be done uh, giving his uh, expertise and, and service uh, to NASA uh, to be able to come back and help at some level, but to give the new administration the opportunity to uh, place in that leadership position who, whom they deem best, I, th I thought was a really uh, statesman-like uh, move. And, and I think will serve the, the organization and the country uh, best. Right. President-elect Biden has already said that he wants to put a woman in that position. So basically, Bridenstine stepping away was basically saying, I don't want to fight about this. Go ahead and put in whoever you need to make this agency better. And I, I think he'd, he'd already indicated that he wasn't uh, inclined to stick around for a second Trump term. So even if Trump had prevailed uh, in the election, um, earlier this month, it wasn't going to be, uh, you know, Bridenstine seeking another four years in that appointment. So I, I think that, you know, he, he came to NASA, he has, um, you know, in four years, some significant accomplishments. And, you know, I think he's, he's ready, he, as he said, he's coming back to Oklahoma. And, you know, what a, what a great thing for Oklahoma to have play for an Oklahoma to be able to have played such a pivotal role uh, at what I believe is one of the most important missions of the United States. Oklahoma Attorney General Mike Hunter is getting involved in Pennsylvania's election. Hunter filed a brief with the U.S. Supreme Court supporting a challenge to Pennsylvania's absentee ballot decisions. This comes after the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania allowed mail-in ballots to be postmarked three days after the election. Chris, why would our attorney general get involved in another state's elections? That is a great question. One that I, I don't fully understand and don't have a clear answer to. It's puzzling to me. Um, I am quite sure that Pennsylvania has its own uh, state's attorney, their own attorney general who can handle the matters for their state. Um, this move honestly seems very political uh, in nature to me. Uh, and and I, I just think it's an unnecessary use of our attorney general's time and resources uh, to weigh in in um, another state's um, uh, voting decisions or practices or policies. It, it, it is very peculiar. And if I were to speculate, and this is only speculation, it, it, it feels like that Attorney General Hunter may be uh, making some moves to position himself personally uh, to maybe run for a different office at some point in time or or what have you. But it, it seems uh, unnecessary and um just not the best use of time for Oklahoma's attorney general to be weighing in and filing a lawsuit in relation to Pennsylvania's voting practices and protocols. Ryan. Yeah, I think that it's hard to not read a political motivation into what uh, the attorney general is doing here. Uh, if, if this were not a state where uh, Trump needed to win in order to 
uh, have any sort of path uh, to a second term. It's, it's doubtful that the attorney general would be up there asking for the Supreme Court to invalidate uh, these votes that came in after the postmark date. Because, you know, essentially, you know, the case is, is this, and it, it existed even before the election. Um, but Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania Sup State Supreme Court said that a state law that required ballots to be posted, that ballots had to be received by election day was unconstitutional per the Pennsylvania state constitution. And that instead it was if they were postmarked by election day and received by the following Friday. So that's what the, their state Supreme Court did. It, you know, state courts all the time interpret their election laws and you know, states, you know, courts often intervene. So if a, a voting machine breaks down, uh, you'll see, we see on the news all the time that a court has, has intervened and extended voting hours by a couple of hours to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to vote. This is very similar to that. You know, this isn't some remarkable overreach into the Pennsylvania state legislature's constitutional prerogative to figure out how they're going to select electors for the presidency. Um, however, if you look at where the state, where the United States Supreme Court is, there's, there may be four, if not five votes that would accept the position being advanced by the Pennsylvania Republican Party and Republican attorneys general like R.O. Mike Hunter. Um, even if they did that, uh, there's just simply not enough votes out there to be, either be invalidated, uh, invalidated or discarded that it would make a difference in the outcome that Joe Biden won Pennsylvania. I mean, there's just no difference there. The thing that would happen though, is that it would enmesh the United States Supreme Court unnecessarily in a deeply political battle. And I think that it would damage the integrity of the court. Uh, I think if the, if the court is wise here, even if they've got five votes to win this case, I think if the court's wise here, they're gonna find a way to not take this case, especially since it, it at the end of the day, isn't gonna matter in the outcome of who won Pennsylvania. And, and I might also just add an observation, just, just to be fair, um, that, uh, Historically, Oklahoma uh, and 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 we're such a populous state, and uh, has has an aversion to outside interests coming into our state to try to tell us uh, or influence, you know, what we are doing here locally. Um, and I think it's ironic that that our own uh, attorney general would be inserting himself or his office. Um, at Oklahoma taxpayers' expense into the process of, uh, of another state. That, it, it seems uh, incredibly ironic uh, and, and unnecessary to me outside of uh, political motivations. The 2020 elections just finished, so we can now start talking about 2022. Yeah. <laughs> well, so former state lawmaker Irvin Yen filed paperwork to challenge Governor Stitt in the Republican primary elections. The Oklahoma City doctor says he will make COVID-19 his top issue. Uh, Chris, well, what do you think of this challenge? I think it's incredibly interesting. I, I, would, uh, I would disclose that diversity is important to me. Uh, and I think that, that um, different perspectives are valuable within the state of Oklahoma. I, I think that uh, I read the, the press release with some interest. In fact, I think it's, it's even on uh, perhaps in, in today's uh, paper as well. Um, and, you know, I think uh, Dr. Yin brings a unique set of credentials to the table, particularly as it per, uh, relates to um, 
the current uh, pandemic and the COVID virus, I am hopeful, like the rest of the nation, that soon and very soon we're going to have uh, a remedy to the, the, the coronavirus. But still yet, I think just the understanding that we probably uh, aren't nearly as prepared as we should be uh, for, for a, a global pandemic uh, makes um, Dr. Yin's candidacy extremely interesting and and I think relevant. So I'm 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 uh, will be uh, following developments with um, with keen interest and um, anticipation to see how this plays out. Ryan, yeah, I think that um, we've all anticipated that Kevin Stitt wasn't going to be able to be reelected without having first uh, winning a Republican primary in 2022. Um, I mean, I think that he has, uh, throughout his uh, two years in the in the governor's office, made so many political enemies, um, and not just on on the left side of the spectrum, but within his own party, uh, that it was that it's inevitable that he was going to face some opposition. Um, I think Dr. Yen's candidacy could, you know, do two things. One, uh, like we said, you know, tee up a primary in 2022, but it could also be some political pressure on the governor to go further than he might otherwise want to go uh, on things like the mask mandate, a statewide mask mandate. <clears throat> because I think that every bit of political pressure short of saying, I'm going to run against you has been exercised at this point to try to get Governor Stitt to come off high center on, on his position that a statewide mask mandate is unenforceable. So therefore, it, since it's not enforceable, it does no good, or he thinks it's kind of productive, uh, which all just seems you know really kind of ridiculous in the face of facts, but that's that's been his position. Perhaps Dr. Yen thought, well, at the very least, I can put a new, a new form of political pressure on the governor to change his position. And we were just talking about the attorney general and uh, Mike Hunter. I think that uh, there, there are a lot of, uh, so there's you know, speculation that Mike Hunter uh, could be one of the folks that would uh, decide to, to run. Uh, Joy Hoffmeister's name has been mentioned as somebody who would be a potential candidate in that Republican primary against the governor. And, you know, it's it'll be uh, even before we get to the point where they're actually out campaigning for votes, how this challenge to his leadership will play out in the dynamics in this upcoming legislative session. Um, because if, if the governor is seen to be embattled, uh, it will uh probably have an effect on his ability to operate uh, as a um, uh, as the, the executive during the, the upcoming legislature. And following elections, as much as I have, I've also noticed that when one person decides to declare their candidacy, it becomes almost a domino that several others. Do you think, Chris, that there's going to be more people that will join in challenging uh, the governor now that one person has finally made that decision? I think it's a strong possibility, and 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 I, I think that Ryan, the names that Ryan ha, has lifted up, are names that I've heard at least circulated in in uh, conversations that I've had as well. I do want to I do want to go back to to Dr. Yin and and talk just for a second, uh, yeah. very quickly about um, his credentials. Uh, when I was in the legislature, I had the opportunity to serve with a physician by the name of Doug Cox, mm, Dr. Cox. Grove, yes. And, and, and I cannot tell you how beneficial it was to have someone like Dr. Cox in the legislature helping us figure out responsible ways to administer the Medicaid uh, uh, system that we have in place, helping us to figure out ways that we can potentially enhance and get the most out of Insure Oklahoma and so on and so forth. I did notice that Dr. Yen also referenced the Medicaid expansion and making sure that Oklahoma incorporates the expansion, implements the expansion 
properly and in a way that ultimately helps improve the quality of life for the entire state. And I think that there's some legitimate uh, expertise that he could potentially bring to the table uh, in that regard as well. I, because of my experience with Dr. Cox, whom I love, mm-hmm. uh, I just know that having a person with that kind of expertise as it pertains to these heavy duty issues could be very beneficial for Oklahoma. And Chris and Ryan's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.